Hello everyone and welcome back to series 10 of the Great Women Artists podcast. I am so excited to say that this series is supported by the Levitt Collection, a vast and varied art collection of which a major portion is dedicated to fantastic works by women artists. The Levitt Collection support for women in the arts is such that preparations are in full swing for the creation of the new museum, FAM, F-A-M-M, which will be opening in June 2024 in Mougins in the south of France. It will be the first major museum in mainland Europe dedicated to solely female artists and will exhibit a myriad of artworks all from the collection. Impressionist, surrealist, modern and contemporary art created by women from around the world will take pride of place in the Levitt's new museum, Female Artists of the Mujan Museum. But in the meantime, stay tuned by following at fam.mujan and don't miss the beautiful book Abstract Expressionists, The Women, published by Morel, which presents a selection of works from the collection alongside richly illustrated essays by scholars Ellen G. Landau and Joan M. Marta, all available now. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most pioneering and my favourite writers alive today, Elif Shafak. The author of 19 books, 12 of which are novels, including her latest, The Brilliant Island of Missing Trees, which was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, a passionate love story that dealt with violence and loss, separation and exile. Shafak is a British-Turkish novelist whose books have been translated into 57 languages. She is the recipient of many awards, including being shortlisted for the Booker Prize for her novel 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in This Strange World, and chosen by the BBC among the 100 novels that shaped our world for her book, The 40 Rules of Love. She holds a PhD in political science and has taught at universities in Turkey, the US and the UK and holds a doctorate of humane letters from Bard College. But the reason why we are speaking with Elif today is because as well as being hailed for her literary work as a fellow and vice president of the Royal Society of Literature, she is also instrumental in her work as an advocate for women's rights, LGBTQ plus rights and freedom of expression. A twice TED Global speaker, she contributes to publications around the world, including The Guardian, and has been at the forefront of highlighting the importance of emotions in art, society, politics and culture, as she has said, why is it that we underestimate feelings and perceptions? I think it's going to be one of our biggest intellectual challenges, because our political systems are replete with emotions, and yet, within the academic and among the intelligentsia, we are yet to take emotions seriously. And this is what I can't wait to find out more about. Elif Shafak, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to join you. Thank you for inviting me. 
My absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. So it is such an honor to speak to you. Not only are you one of my favorite storytellers and novelists who creates worlds through imagination that feel like places you've visited in dreams or lived in in past lives, but you are also a lifelong campaigner for women's rights, women's stories, stories that represent and elevate any minority. One of my favorite lines by you that I always keep close to me is, one should never, ever remain silent for fear of complexity. So I want to start by asking you, when did you become interested in telling and fighting for women's stories? I think it wasn't exactly a decision or one single moment that changed me. But more like a, like a river, isn't it? Our lives are like rivers. Uh, there's a flow. And so when I look back, I think one of the things that left a big impact on me and the way I see the world is the fact that I was raised by two women who are very different from each other, my mother and my grandmother. I grew up in a, you might say, a dysfunctional family, you know, a broken family. And my mom was a very young divorcee, a single working mom in a very patriarchal setting in late 1970s Turkey. And at the time, that was very, very unusual. So I had to be more aware. I became more aware. Maybe it opened my eyes and I was able to see the challenges that they went through, both my mother and my grandmother in different ways. But also I was able to witness the solidarity between them. And I'm a big believer in sisterhood. I think if and when women support each other, the impact of that kind of solidarity goes beyond generations. And it really did in my case, you know, because my grandmother supported my mother's independence at a very difficult moment in her life and took care of me. Thanks to that solidarity, I had a better education, I had more choices in life. So it changed my life as well and most probably my children's lives as well. So women have to support each other and how can we empower women is a question that I had to ask myself from an early age onwards. Totally. I mean, so much of your work centers around, especially minorities, whether they be women or non-Western figures. I mean, why is it important to talk about women's stories in your work? Primarily because, of course, as a writer, as a novelist, I love stories, I love language, I love words. I can spend hours thinking about just one line, one sentence. I'm equally drawn to silences. And there's a part of me that wants to understand where the pockets of silence, where are they buried in a society, in a culture? So there's a part of me that wants to open up conversations this doesn't mean that I do know the answers. I don't. But it only means that I care about the questions. I care about those silences. And I think it's very important that we be able to talk about them because silences do keep us apart, keep us fearful in our own cocoons. It's only when we connect and communicate and when we hear each other's stories, only then we can emotionally bond only then we can demolish those walls of apathy. So empathy requires, first of all, listening. We have to become good listeners. But you don't only listen to stories. You also have to listen to silences. I think that's my starting point. I think that is so beautiful as well, because it's a bit like art in a way, you know, art making. When you see the finished sculpture or you see the finished painting, in a way, as a novelist, you must spend so much time imagining and dreaming worlds in your head. And Reading or writing a novel is actually not that dissimilar from a work of art. 
being in front of a work requires imagination and story building. Who was the artist? What led them to that place? But also, in a way, like the novel, are you only reading or looking at the finished product? When I read your novels, it's like I know that you know so much more than I do because you've built this whole world. So, what role do images play in your work? You know, everything you said deeply, deeply resonates with me. So I keep nodding my head because it's very close to my heart. Of course, when we look at a work of art or a piece of literature, we only see, in a way, the end result. But as you said, you know, so much thought, so many emotions go into that. And it's not a linear process either. We get lost, we find our feet, then we get lost again. It's much more complicated. But I think in both cases, there's almost a desire to go beyond the limits of the self that was given to us by society, by culture. It's almost like a transcendental experience. You want to see what lies beyond those barriers. And that's how we create or try to create. Images are so crucial for me, actually, almost in a very irrational way. So much so that I find it a bit difficult to talk about it because <laughs> sometimes a story comes to me mostly via images. Just to give you one example, one of my earlier novels is called The Bastard of Istanbul. And the opening scene came to me almost as a picture. This young woman in Istanbul, she's wearing high heel shoes, but one of the heels is broken. So she carries that broken heel almost like a wounded bird, and she's walking under the rain. Meanwhile, there are cars passing by, pedestrians, and she's experiencing harassment. And she's swearing at the city, at the rain, at her life. All of that came to me. It was a very complex scene, but it came to me as an image. And I loved what I saw, and I felt what I saw. So I wanted to know, who is this woman? And so I followed her story and little by little, the pieces came together and that turned into a novel. So the reason why I'm mentioning this is because sometimes words guide me. It's the rhythm of the language, but other times it's images that guide me and I just follow them. Yeah, I mean, I remember how sort of visceral the opening of something like The Architect's Apprentices as well, you know, just completely transporting us to the 1500s. I mean, the way that you evoke taste, smells, the roar of the lion, the trees that surround your character in the island of missing trees, you know, water or land. Like, I find it so image heavy. When you're writing your fiction, how does art help you make sense of the story then? I think it's basically you have to take your gloves off and you need to touch life with your naked, bare flesh so that you can feel it. You can feel the, the cold, the heat, you can taste, you can hear. You cannot keep yourself in a sterilized, aloof environment and look from above at the streets you're writing about or at the lives you're writing about. You have to be there on the ground. You know, it's difficult for me to explain, but I really think you need to keep all your senses open and connected. Uh, that sensual experience is very important. And there are lots of studies that show that actually memory is closely linked to the sensual experience in the sense that we remember through tastes, we remember through smells, we remember through sounds or the lack of sounds. Those are the things that stay with us. 
I'm very interested in emotional intelligence, the connection between emotional intelligence and memory. I'm also interested in amnesia because I come from a country that has been to a large extent shaped by collective amnesia. So these pockets of memory, sometimes they're like resistance, resilience, and that is also connected with emotions. So when I write, I think it comes to me naturally, the connection between emotions and our various senses. And that's, I think, how I perceive life myself. Totally. I mean, you know, I'm constantly sort of grappling with that, looking at an image online or actually going to a gallery to see it. And I spent this, the morning in the National Portrait Gallery just really looking. And actually, you just get so much out of it, obviously. You know, it sounds so simple, but actually it's easy for us to look at it from above or look at it from far away. But when you get in it, that is when the magic happens. That is so true. And that's also one of the dangers of our online world, because so much is now via a screen. It might have its own advantages, but sometimes we forget how important that personal touch is. Same with bookstores. When you allow yourselves to get lost inside the library, you discover books that you were not planning to read. You discover writers or poets that you knew nothing about. Whereas when everything is done online, we lose that connection. We lose that discovery, that curiosity. So we have to go, we have to see, we have to taste. Just be there and just stand next to an amazing painting and see what it does to us, how it connects with us to allow that moment to open up. I think those experiences are very, very important. So I love museums, I love libraries, I love exhibitions. And I think more and more we need to remind ourselves of how precious they are. Totally. I'd love to also go back to your beginnings. I mean, you were born in 1971 in France, an only child who was predominantly raised by your mother and your grandmother. I love this idea that you had a very rational mother, but a, I think you've said a remarkably irrational, surprisingly wise <laughs> grandmother, which is the kind of best of both worlds. How was art present in your life? What were the images that you grew up around? It was, I think, mostly music from my mother, because had her circumstances been different, she would have loved to be a musician, you know, dedicate her whole life to music. She would write poems, song lyrics, play the oud, but there was constant music in the house. That stayed very vividly with me. But from my grandmother, I think it's the visual imagery, especially in her storytelling, because her stories were so irrational. They were so magical, full of, we call it the mountain cough where according to Middle Eastern legends, beyond the mountain cuff is where you find all these extraordinary creatures and worlds. It's like the storyland is there somewhere. And so every time you listen to grandma, I felt transported to the mountain cuff. And always you come back from that space with images in your mind. And I think all those images also stayed with me. Over time, as I became older, I also became very interested in interdisciplinary studies, women's studies. At the time in Turkey, it was unheard of. We were the first students. And I loved it because that interdisciplinary character of this area allows you to do sociology, but also to connect that with history and then to connect that with art. And suddenly you're doing history of art, but with women at the center, not women as the subjects of art, 
but at the center, you know, you're looking for the female gaze. So you're able to ask those questions. So again, I love interdisciplinary work. We cannot stay in our own little disciplines. We need to open up these conversations and then the magic happens, in my opinion. I totally agree. I mean, that's why I fell in love with art history, because it was elements of literature, music, sociology, anthropology, everything. And actually, on the podcast, I love interviewing people who aren't necessarily art historian academics, because I want to open up that conversation to hear everyone's different perspectives. So I'd love to ask you, you know, what was a piece of art or an artist you learned about that first moved you in your youth? I spent my teenage years in Madrid, in Spain. And uh, after that very conservative, very patriarchal environment, to be almost zoomed to Madrid to go to a school with um, where the students came from all, all backgrounds, that was a huge transformation for me. But one of the biggest things that shaped me at the time and stayed with me was the, the work of art that I was exposed to in Madrid, especially the, the Prado Museum. And when I discovered little by little Francisco de Goya, I mean, Goya for me was incredible. I loved the range of his work. I was puzzled that some of his work was incredibly colorful, full of lights and a more polished life. And then suddenly this more gloomy, questioning, darker work. And and they're both the same person. As a teenager, discovering his work, I think was incredibly important for me. I mean, I love this idea that actually just one person can produce such a sort of spectrum in their output, because I think we are people of sort of multitudinous selves in a way. We don't just have one life and one narrative, which is also why I think it's so interesting. You know, you mentioned earlier this idea of not just focusing on women as a subject, you know, actually thinking about women as spectator, because actually so oftentimes women have been projected as having one very singular narrative in a way that's been perpetuated by the way that art history has been taught. That is so true. And one of the words you mentioned is multiplicity. That also very much resonates with me. And I think we need to be careful because, again, when I look at the world we're living in, whether it's the arts or literature, we're often pigeonholed. We're often put into boxes. That artist produces this kind of work. That writer produces this kind of stories. And that's it. You know, we can't be narrowed down into those boxes. So we have to remember Goya's amazing creativity and the range of that. We have multiple stories, very different sides of our characters. One day I might write about Turkish women, but another book might be completely different. So we should allow ourselves that flexibility. So rather than singular identities, singular boxes, I'm much more interested in fluid, multiple belongings. Totally. I mean, when we were emailing before, you mentioned to me four artists who'd move you, you know, Artemis Gentileschi, George O'Keefe, Frida Kahlo, Anna Mendieta, who are four of my absolute favourite artists. But I would love to start with Artemis Gentileschi. She was a, a Baroque artist working in the 17th century, and she kind of upended all convention with her artworks. When she was working, so often biblical stories were dictated by men, but she actually sort of showed the other side of it in a way. So what attracted you to Artemisia Gentileschi? Yeah, I mean, what troubles me is, first of all, that we don't know anything about her unless we make more effort and dig into history. Otherwise, that information is not available. You really have to be curious. For me, I think it was her courage. Of course, she's alone in so many ways. But there's always this question in my mind, 
what if there were other women in that setting around her who also produced amazing work just like her, but about whom I know nothing? It's always this lost memory, lost knowledge that I'm interested in. And it, it pains me to think that we're constantly trying to unearth forgotten stories. And forgive me, I'm being a bit emotional about this because just this summer, I experienced something that infuriated me, a male friend whom I was having a conversation with, and he's also in the arts. He said with such indifference that actually there weren't too many women in the history of art. And, and there must be a reason for that. you know. Otherwise, there would be more women painters. There would be more women interested in sculpture and in, in, in poetry. But actually, their numbers are so small. So that's an indication that actually uh, there's a lack of creativity there. And so people to speak like that still today, it's a reality we need to face and we need to fight against. And it pains me because so many women's contributions hard work, creativity, talent, despite the odds, what they have produced is just forgotten, erased. So I think there's, for me, primarily her work uh, reminds me that there's so much learning and unlearning that I need to do personally. Yeah, I mean, completely. It's like this, the fact that we're almost culturally robbed you know, Gentileschi's story was shut out for centuries. It only kind of properly resurfaced with the art historian called Mary Garrard in the 1980s. And actually, we were robbed by our culture for not finding out about these. You know, how different society might have been. It wasn't like they weren't there. It was the fact that they weren't in the mainstream. And it's the fact that also those people dictating the story purposefully left these artists out. I remember you've you've spoken about, you know, you as a young Turkish student, it occurred to you that history was taught to me top down could be seen in very different ways dependent on who is telling the story that's also so interesting we need to sort of change the default of how we actually tell stories and who is telling those stories that is so true i mean i think oftentimes especially in turkey the way history is taught is devoid of individuals you know you need to memorize dates of victories triumphs there is a very masculine language around which official history is being taught. And the only individuals that are talked about are usually men with power, in positions of power. So you talk about sultans, sheikhul islams. But it's only when you ask smaller questions about, quote-unquote, ordinary people, asking questions about micro-histories, micro-stories. For instance, how would it feel like to live in 17th century Ottoman Empire, 19th century Ottoman Empire? How would my life be like if I had been an Armenian silversmith or a Kurdish peasant or a concubine in the harem or a woman sold in a, in a slave market? What would my life be like had I been her? Only then, when we ask these questions to ourselves, then we realize the story changes. And so there are all these multiple stories that we're never, ever allowed to hear, talk about. You know, the story changes depending on who is telling it and who is not allowed to tell it. And I think art should be interested, especially in those untold stories and forgotten voices. Totally, like this sort of danger of the single story and also this idea that also where do we begin as well? I think the beginning is such an interesting 
concept? What if we change the Renaissance to the Druids? Or like you said, go to the silversmiths and the Ottoman Empire, how different the sort of quote unquote canon would be? The canon would be completely different. And I hear you also when you say, you know, there is a danger in trying to take one story, because that's also sometimes done to us, and make that the representative of a bigger collectivity. I think multiplicity is something that we need to constantly fight for. There are multiple stories, and only when I listen to those multiple stories that I can understand the complexity of truth. There's a reason why authoritarian mindset doesn't like ambiguity. You know, it's everything has to be boiled down to clashing uh, opposites. Also, just the way that you sort of brought up the silversmith and the Ottoman Empire. I mean, you know, I grew up in London. I'm still robbed from not knowing enough about artists across the world. You know, there's unfortunately still so much we don't know. So many women whose stories have been lost, poets, painters, writers, activists. That said, there was a flourishing, a very vivid women's movement, especially 19th century onwards. And it was quite diverse. For me, one of the most precious things to observe when I dig into the history of that movement is to see how women from completely different backgrounds supported each other and listened to each other. So you could have a Jewish poet, you could have an Armenian writer, you could have a Turkish painter or a Kurdish activist. But that unfortunately didn't last too long. So there's a moment in history when there's more conversations, more listening, but we have to keep that going. The second thing is, unfortunately, there's sometimes a class inequality that we don't talk about. I'm not saying it's easy for women from upper classes. They also go through enormous challenges when you look at Ottoman history. But of course, relatively speaking, for a woman from a much more disadvantaged background who has not been given proper education or support from her family or doesn't have the financial means to go into the world of arts is an even bigger challenge. So I'm I'm a big believer in intersectional feminism and I think it's important to keep that in mind when we are reading history. There are all these layers upon layers of challenges. It's not only about glass ceilings, but sometimes there are glass walls too, separating us from each other. So it it pains me to think and to, to read about women who were incredibly talented, but unfortunately who died early, who suffered a lot, who were almost ostracized, stigmatized. One of them actually, her name is Mihri, Mihri Rasim. And until recently, not much was known about her. She was an immigrant in America. She was born in late 19th century Ottoman Empire and in incredible challenges living in a, in a very patriarchal setting in which she has to defend her work as a painter. Also, what you are allowed to paint, are you allowed to paint nudes? Are you allowed to paint the female body, portraits? You know, everything is being questioned. From that environment, she goes to America, she becomes an immigrant And her life is full of so many challenges and difficulties. And in the end, when she dies, she's buried in a potter's field in incredible hardship. So for me, there's a very sad story there. But I feel like it's our duty to remember her work. When you look at her paintings, there's so much strength there, so much intelligence there and talent there. 
And as we said, she's one of the many women about whom we know almost nothing. Oh my God. But, but you know, it, it's thanks to you know, people like you who are also sort of championing that. Constantly, I'm learning about new artists every day. You know, in my book, I mean, it's just a sort of fraction of a fraction of women who have contributed to art. And, and, and the most amazing thing about the world we're living in now is that we do have this incredible sisterhood and this sort of power and strong belief to actually say, you know, we need to unearth these women's stories. Definitely. May, may I say how much your your book, your work changed this narrative? It's in, incredible. It's so I find your work so inspiring, so m- motivating, but also empowering. And and I really want to thank you because you're not only unearthing forgotten women's stories and their talents, but also I think connecting the dots across disciplines. And that's something that I find very very inspiring. But I mean, you know, I also love sort of connecting the dots with all different writers and artists and everything because we're, we're all doing it together. You know, I think collectivity is so important. That's so true. But I mean, you've lived in many different places, but right now you are based in London, where you have been from a decade after moving here after your novel, The Bastards of Istanbul, sparked a chain of events in Turkey. I mean, I've only lived in London, so I don't have the same history as you, but I wonder how do you think art can emotionally connect us to places that we are not physically or mentally in or accepted by? Yeah, and I think art does that all the time, actually. First of all, through art and literature, we do connect with people we might have regarded as different, even as the other. And then you realize that actually the other is my brother, you know, the other is my sister. I am the other. So it really erases all those imaginary barriers that we keep erecting. But it also, I think, prevents apathy in the sense that I always find numbers very dangerous in the sense that when we only see human beings as numbers, it does create a numbness, you know, it it numbs our feelings. Let's think about it. If I read 500 refugees have lost their lives trying to maybe come into Europe. Now think of the number 1,000 refugees or migrants have died. That numerical difference between 500 and 1,000 actually means nothing to the mind. It doesn't even stay with us. But if I know the stories of the people involved, their names, their ages, their dreams, what was it that made people take such risks? What happened in their lives? What was their childhood like? Suddenly, then I start to feel and it starts to hurt. So only through stories and arts and connections, we can feel each other's stories and start to empathize. I'm not pronouncing it properly, but I love the German word, Einfühlung, which is not exactly empathy. It's more like feeling into you're transporting yourself into another existence, another space. Unless we learn to feel into rather than look at things from above or from a distance, there's no way we can truly understand. I think there's a connection between emotions and wisdom. And art brings that out and does it in actually in a very gentle way. I don't like the kind of art that teaches or preaches or tries to show the answers. I think what we are after is just opening up conversations and learning from each other. There has to be a humility. It has to be very humble, the whole whole process. And I think it's always 
the questions that should be our guides rather than dictating the answers. I think that's so wonderful and also completely sort of speaks to how I, why I love art so much as well, because it is a individual's perception of something that they went through and they had to sort of express it in some way, whether it would be poetry or whether it would be art or whether it would be musical. You know, I think we're constantly sort of craving or looking for that individual story. And like you said, you know, numbers can only mean one thing, but actually when we really sort of get to the heart and we read your book because you wrote it, and I want to hear your point of view. And I think constantly we're afraid to say what we think, but actually what we need is we want to hear the individual story. Absolutely. And, and only then we can start to realize that actually we're not that different, you know. It's sad because the world we're living in is constantly reducing everything to snippets of information. I do make a difference between information, knowledge, and wisdom. And I think for too long, especially late 1990s, early 2000s, we have romanticized information. There was this expectation that if there's enough information, if information can be circulated around freely, everybody will make informed choices, and then democracy will develop. Sooner or later, undemocratic countries will also catch up And the the arc of history can only go in one direction, linear. That was very simplistic. That's not what happened in reality. Where we are right now, I think we're living in a world which is bombarded by information. We have way too much information, more than we can process, let alone misinformation. But we have much, much less knowledge and even less wisdom. So how can we change that ratio? How can we deal with less information in our daily lives, but with more knowledge and hopefully, eventually, with more wisdom. I think for knowledge, you need to slow down. Knowledge cannot be rushed. It's not like having bits and pieces of information and then assuming that we know the subject. For knowledge, we need slow journalism, we need books, we need to look into people's stories. Maybe we need to stop in front of a painting and spend time, just absorb what it's saying to me. And for wisdom, we need to bring the the mind and the heart together. So that also requires emotional intelligence. To me, art is an amazing way to bring out knowledge and hopefully wisdom. Art is not as interested in information as many other things are in today's world. I mean, I usually, if I'm speaking to an artist or, or an art historian about a specific artist on this podcast, I always start with a question, which is, how do you feel in front of a work? Because I think that is also something, you know, we all should have an opinion about how something makes us feel, it can, and it can be all sorts of things. And I think someone who painted so intimately and so emotionally, but also sort of challenged this intellectual versus emotional sort of discussion is someone like Frida Kahlo. And so I wondered how she makes you feel when you look at her work. Oh, she's been, like for so many people, she's been a huge source of inspiration for me, especially in my early youth. Interestingly, in Turkey, I think Frida Kahlo touched the lives of so many women for so many generations. I wish that sometimes they ask, like, if if you go back in time, whom would you like to meet? (laughs) I wish we could meet her and say to her, do you have any idea how... You have inspired women and young girls all across the world because she has that kind of power. And then when I went to America, I lived in America for about five years. Then I did more reading, more research into Frida Kahlo's life, her relations, her illnesses, her sufferings, her amazing resilience, perseverance. 
and it left a big impact on me. So in her case, I would say both her art was important for me, but who she is, her character, her life also was important for me. I think what Frida Kahlo did, which sort of no artist had really done before, was actually sort of show the truth of suffering, but also desire and love and energy or, or excitement of life as well. She really stripped the body bare, especially the female body, of who she is and, and what she can be. And the, for me, you know, some of her work, such as Broken Column, which has a column through her spine, almost sort of signified the kind of death of the perfect image of woman and actually saying, this is who I am. And like you said, you know, she's constantly being rediscovered by different generations because she was so ahead of her time and put herself out there on the line to sort of speak the truth. That is so true. And I think she also made vulnerability powerful. I mean, vulnerability is powerful, but we tend to forget that. And we see it as a source of weakness. I think she had this enormous courage in, in some of her paintings. No wonder she shows her heart like naked, just stripped off the flesh, the clothes, all the makeup and everything, just the heart is out there. And that putting your soul, putting your vulnerability, all your emotions with such rawness, with such bravery. So there's a lot actually to learn from Frida Kahlo's work, both her artistic work, but also her intellectual work. We tend to forget that, in my opinion, she was a public intellectual. She was a thinker. We tend to forget that about Frida Kahlo. Her, her circle, her friends, her relationships. This is a time in which they're questioning so many things about individual freedoms, from individual freedoms to collective freedom and equality and inclusion. So there's a thinker behind those paintings. And I find also that very important to remember. Definitely. She was a, in, incredibly intellectual. She was a great lover of art, whether it would be sort of European art history or pre-Columbian art history. She also studied medicine. She knew about Freud. I mean, she was such an intellectual. But I want to ask you about Georgia O'Keeffe as well, because she paints in such an atmospheric way, almost sort of akin to your writing. I mean, you can almost kind of feel the dust of the red lunar cliffs that she surrounded herself with. So I want to ask you, how do sort of artists influence your writing or your storytelling when you're looking at an image? I mean, all the female artists that we have talked about, from Artemisia Gentileschi to Giorgio O'Keeffe, Frida Kahlo, as I listen to you, I realize I associate them with maybe different phases of my life, of my personal life. And so for me, Giorgio O'Keeffe was probably associated mostly with my time in Arizona. I lived in Arizona. I wrote one of my novels in Arizona, and it changed me. I'm a big city person. I thought... I couldn't do in a place like Arizona, which is disconnected from that big city rhythm and energy. But in fact, something completely different happened. And it connected me with the deserts, with nature, with plants, with trees, colors in a completely different way. It was a big, big learning experience for me. I was a scholar there. I was teaching there. But I was also learning so much personally, because when I first discovered her work, it didn't leave a huge impression on me. I just walked away. But then during that time in Arizona, I found something that I had missed, that power of sensuality, that connection, that opening up. And as you said, actually, it is also quite raw, but in a very different way. So it's not polished with makeup and hiding itself. And it, it impressed me. So I think I, in my mind, in my soul, I would always uh, associate O'Keeffe's work with my own learning process in Arizona, my own 
reconnections with with nature, with plants, with earth, with soil, with water, with sky. Totally. And I mean, how do you think art can help us make sense of the world that we're living in? It helps us to see, and I don't say this lightly, I think as children we ask so many amazing questions because we keep curiosity alive. You know, they tell us, well, God is above clouds, and the child asks, why? And the child dares to ask, well, what does he look like? Questions that we never dare to ask afterwards because we fear other people's judgment. One thing that stayed very vividly with me is I I used to go to schools a lot in Turkey. I wrote a children's book in Turkey, and that gave me the chance to talk to students, young students, and listen to them. Now, when you talk to a six-year-old, seven-year-old Turkish child or a Jordanian or an Egyptian child, they're no different whatsoever from a Canadian, Norwegian, American child. They have the same confidence, chutzpah, creativity. If you ask in a room full of young students, is there anyone here who would like to become a painter someday? So many hands go up. Is there anyone here who is a poet? So many hands go up. And at that age, girls are just as confident, if not even more confident than boys. But then I would go to schools for older kids, now 16-year-old, 7-year-old, 15-year-old, and then you realize everything has changed. Now, nobody wants to become a writer. Nobody wants to become a poet or calls themselves a poet. If you ask in a room full of 15 or 16-year-old teenagers in Turkey, is there anyone here who would like to become a painter? I don't think too many hands would go up. And it was crucial for me to observe that girls have become timid. You know, where are the girls, those six-year-old, seven-year-old girls who had so much confidence, where did they go? What happened is via society, family, culture, school, neighborhood, just putting pressure upon pressure, we told them, watch out, blend in, just don't stand out. Watch what you're saying. You're going to be judged if you say something stupid, if you dress up differently, if you laugh out too loud. Beware of your voice. Even the tone of your voice will be judged. So little by little, we took away their voices. We took away their courage and confidence. And so what happens is by the time they reach 18 year old, very few people dare to say, I'm a poet. You know what? I'm a painter. This is what I'm going to dedicate my life to. And especially for girls, it's much, much harder. So you observe this. I've seen it with my eyes. Now, what art does to us is it reminds us of that inner child, that inner creativity that we already had, but was taken away from us. So how do we keep the inner garden alive? How do we nurture it? How can we take good care of it? It's incredibly crucial, I think, for artists and for poets and writers. That is just honestly the most beautiful thing in the world. And I also love the idea that we may be getting older with age, but actually embrace that curiosity. You can also be a writer or a poet when you're older. Even if you're 50, you could be a writer in your 60s or 70s. And the kind of like that excitement, you know, artists give us permission to be ourselves and see the world in such an interesting way. Elif Shafak, this has been the most amazing conversation. Thank you so much. You did briefly mention it earlier, but we do always ask our guests, If you could meet a female artist from now or from history, who would it be and what would you say to her? I mean, you did mention Frida Kahlo earlier. I don't know if that would be the same. 
now. Yes, I mean, I, of course, I would love to meet her, but so many others as well. All I can say is let's keep unearthing their stories. Let's keep sharing their stories and amplifying their voices and their works. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure, such an inspiring conversation. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artist Podcast with the fantastic Elif Shafak. I am just in awe of all of her thoughts on writing, art and literature and of course, women's rights. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Menelage. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artist Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Katie Hessel.